0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Lose Rugby Podcast. My name is Dan Murphy and with me always is Derek Brissett and Stu Hardy. Uh, gentlemen, we actually have uh, Jeff Hassler with us uh, once again. You know, we we had a fantastic time uh, interviewing and talking about his career and we thought, you know what, let's keep the party going and let's kind of talk about some uh, current rugby that's going on right now. MLR is, is, is creeping towards that start date and we've had some big announcements happen. So let's get right into it, guys. The big one is, is, is kind of big for, for the league. Um, the Dallas Jackals will be delaying their inaugural season to 2022. I want to talk first guys and, and Derek, maybe I'll have you kind of talk about what are some of the reasons for this happening? Because, you know, the training camps are supposed to be happening in a few weeks.
1: Yeah, it's uh definitely the announcement comes at kind of a shocking time. I think a shock to uh to a handful of a lot of the players and stuff too. Like they said, camp's supposed to start in about two weeks. I think the announcement came about five days after the Jackals put season ticket deposits on sales as well. Um, so there's you know there's fans that probably bought season ticket deposits within the five days leading up to them saying that they're going to postpone the inaugural season um they're the announcement i guess the press release kind of vague in my opinion they just kind of were like you know covid's been been crazy and you know has hurt a lot of COVID be crazy yeah exactly covid's covid gets covid's being blamed for everything um anything bad that happens is this year you can just blame covid and people it's the automatic excuse (laughs) you can go with now i think um but i mean that's it's probably like part of it i would imagine is genuinely part of the reason why but um it's, uh, but like the overall was kind of vague. And I think, um, I think right now, like you just kind of got to feel bad for like the players and stuff that may have, you know, been planning on relocating to Dallas or, you know, are already in the process of doing that. Or like guys that, like you said, two weeks out of camp and now they don't have a team to play for and i mean jeff uh like i'm not a player but jeff i'm not sure like how like how if you've talked to any of the guys on dallas or anything but like how do you think a lot of these guys are feeling kind of knowing that you know we're about a month away from the season starting these guys have to know they now they have to go into a a dispersal draft for the nine raptors that are on the team that's like that's going to be their second dispersal draft in just Uh, When did they do the first one? Like just before the inaugural? Yeah. So it's like second dispersal draft within a calendar year, basically. Um, So like, how do you think like those guys are kind of feeling going in or now that sort of their 2021 is a little up in the air? Yeah.
2: I mean, um, uh, like personally from a player in that league um, uh, there was a a lot of chat instantly from the, the AGs guys too. And like, I don't know many of those players personally, but being, in the league and knowing what that means, like, um, as much as it's like a, a spectator sport and people are, are looking at it kind of in, um, like, a, a, a macro overview, you got to think of players, this is their livelihood. Um, and they're, they're in a COVID scenario where people haven't had salaries coming in, uh, those sorts of things. So for those players, we were instantly on it. Like, um, uh, as a player group. Um, and then some of the, the leadership guys within the MLR too, um, just saying like these, these guys are in a very, very tough position. Um, uh, and you got to kind of think about it, um, as uh, they're, they're expected to to be in a city and, and playing in a league and making money. And all of a sudden that gets stripped from them. Um, and it's, it's player well being and just like, uh, knowing, uh, that, that people have to make ends meet. And with this happening, um, there's genuine concerns from players across the league. What's, what's going to look like, how it's going to affect the league, um, new scheduling and that sort of stuff. So um, interesting that um, a lot of the guys that don't even know those players from Dallas are are very concerned about it. So.
0: Uh, Stu, I got a question for you about this and is this something that's going to benefit major league rugby in the long run? Does delaying the season to next year kind of helping them get all their ducks in a row strengthen the league or does this just become another kind of kink in the armor? You know, Major League Rugby hasn't had the best business situation the past year between, uh, you know, uh, Colorado leaving and the whole mess with Kenaloa Rugby. You know, can't really blame that on MLR, but is this just, is this something that's going to strengthen the league or is it something that could be seen as a, a weakness in a developing league.
3: I think at the immediate moment, it's a, a bad image for the league as a whole to have um, a big team, a big new team pulling out, and and it is because of the vagueness of everything within the press release. You can't be able to like pin it. If they were able to pin it down and say. Um, because of COVID, there's been a backlog with visas, for example. Um their head coach is Alan Clark, um, is Irish, um, their attack coach is Scottish. And we've we've been aware that there have been visa issues with MLR in the past, and to now say that, oh, you know, COVID has just made everything take much longer, that even if as soon as Alan Clark was announced as a head coach, he started his visa process. And it's still taking so long. As somebody who's currently applying for permanent residency in Canada, it's affecting everyone of how long a visa process and um, residency process is taking. Uh, But in the long run, for example, we're now going back to even conferences on both sides. I know the, uh, the schedule probably won't be changed too much, but it may allow a bit of benefit it's still going to be an 18 week season still going to get those two bye weeks um Are we answer,
1: do we do we know that for sure
3: no but
1: jeff do you guys know what's going on oh,
2: sorry, sorry. <laughs> i'm looking at it now and um, just seeing like um, the current kind of covid environment i think um for for me and speaking to some of the other players it's uh it's interesting knowing that we're going to um even teams in both conferences and then um you look at the, the fixtures where we would play Dallas and are those going to be bye weeks Are we going to condense the schedule? Or um, in my opinion, uh, it would be a good thing to leave those weeks um, open because I think there are going to be the reality of COVID. There's going to be um, rescheduling of games. So leave those weeks open that the teams would have to play. Don't do it as a bye week but almost a rescheduling week. And those, those sorts of things haven't come out, um, to players, or even within the the inner workings of MLR, so it's interesting to to see how that is going to work. Um, I guess we, we yeah we just got to wait and see, right?
1: How would you if if that is the way that like you would like to see it go? Like, how would you kind of balance the fact that like teams play Dallas like an uneven number of times, right? Like, there's some teams that don't play Dallas at all. There's teams that p- were scheduled to play Dallas once, and then there's teams that are scheduled to play Dallas twice. Um, so, like, how would you kind of like, would you do like, I guess, like say maybe what the NHL did to the end of their season last year where they were just like, everyone played a weird number of games with the standings are going to be based on like percentage of wins instead, or like, how would you, or something else entirely? Like, how would you kind of handle that if your idea is to, um, just not like have bye weeks instead of playing a game with fewer scheduled against Dallas?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's tough. Um, and I've spoke to some of the guys at Sea wolves as well. And, um, that's just kind of the, the reality of it. You might have teams that just get that extra week, um, but we've also spoke about just having it like a true conference style. So let's um, kind of take away those um, away games to the Eastern conferences in in my position um, and just run a straight up uh, Western conference now that we're even even teams uh, and then do like top four or even top six with like NFL style where you got like the, the top team gets the bye and don't even do the crossovers to the other side. And that's a whole different conversation, but you're right because it's like we, we have a home and away with Dallas um, and the teams that don't um, there's, I think there's probably two teams that don't even play them. I think.
1: Yeah. 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 There's everybody in the league would miss out on playing two teams. And then the East was all kind of, the East was all straight. Yeah. They had the uneven numbers, or like the le- or like one less um team than the western conference so there's some eastern conference teams had to play each other three times and then so yeah. there was yeah so it's i guess i guess realistically the entire schedule kind of has to be redone and like with the season about just under 2 months away now yeah training camp starting and
2: they come out already and said they're going to redo it um yeah so I don't I don't know if it's going to be uh, like I said conference wise or how they're going to deal with those kind of weeks that were scheduled in against Dallas, but um, the the whole thing is it's being looked at by by all the different ownership and stuff. So um, it will be interesting to see. Um, but again, because of because of COVID and the way it is, and you look at other uh, national sports leagues and stuff, um, in my opinion, it would be beneficial to leave those weeks open to to make games up because. I think the reality of where we're at, there's going to be cancellation. Um, it's just, it, it's inevitable that you can you, we're not in a bubble situation. Um, we're not able to to really um, stop some of the family members and stuff that are working in, in those communities uh, bringing COVID in. And um, that, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's super tough.
1: Like, what do you kind of think like is, going to be like the solution i guess to where all the dallas players go like as players in the league like so i know like our last episode you guys were kind of talking about you were talking about like a canadian um rugby players association and stuff that major league rugby obviously doesn't have a players union or anything but like how like how are you guys kind of reacting to like are, are you as the players like are you happy seeing a team um that's kind of like hey like all these guys thought they had a job in dallas and then now they're potentially like no one said what the rules of the dispersal draft are so we have no idea but like potentially saying going to any of the other 12 cities in the league now
2: well so that was like one of the main things and our group chat blew up as soon as that article came out and um, you got to think of yeah player welfare and stuff and and you look at um, mlr uh, salaries and the salary caps most teams are, they're, they're locked up, right? Like you're working within pretty constrained budgets straight off the bat. And, um, they're, they're good players that are at Dallas, right? So there are teams that will benefit from those guys coming, but then also what's the league going to do to make sure that we can, are they going to increase the salary cap? Are they going to let, um, these guys get paid the salaries that they're supposed to have? How do we, how do we navigate those sorts of things, um, so that those players can do a dispersal and and still be involved in the league in some capacity right i wonder um,
0: if they'll do something similar to like how some like in the nhl you can uh you know part of the salary can still be part of of another team so i wonder if they'll just say the the if you're a dallas jackals player your money does not go towards your team's cap yeah so that, that might be something interesting that they might have to look at especially with like you're saying the teams being so close and it being If, if this had been like December, they announced that they were leaving, maybe teams might have a little bit more leeway in terms of cash uh, cap. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, again, uh, yeah, that, that, that's tough. Like you've got a, each program is going to have to either, um, have salary cap increases and then that comes down to the individual owners and staffing. Are we willing to fork out a bit more cash? We're in like the early stages of MLR where, um, uh, salary caps have been pretty locked in to what they are. Um, some, some teams are like, let's push it up. Some teams just can't actually do that. So, um, as much as they'd like to, to take in those players, you've got to understand that some of these guys are, uh, the owners are, aren't able to actually do that. So then again, that creates the, the question, like some of these guys are definitely at loose ends. So it's, it's super, super tough.
0: Well, guys, there's been some some more news in MLR, and, and we're gonna go to uh, Utah now. And Utah announced the resignation of head coach uh, Chris Latham. Um, Latham joined um, the Warriors in 2019, and uh, you know was helping build you know kind of a culture within uh, Utah. So uh, him leaving was quite a shock in in um in, ma- in the major league rugby sphere. Um, and he cited personal reasons and there've been tons of guesses out there about why he left, but they are currently now going to be coached by uh, uh, Sean Pittman, who was their uh, assistant coach, uh, came in the same time at, as 2019. Now guys, they have between Pittman, they still have Brandon Sparks, who's their director of rugby. You know, They're in a kind of a unique situation, especially since Utah did have a lot of turnover. How do we feel about this, this situation with the head coach leaving so so quickly uh, before the season starts, and uh, Pittman has now had a lot of experience. I mean, he worked with the Seawolves. he worked with USA Rugby, and so he's also worked with Utah. So they seem to be an okay situation, but it's just an interesting thing to once again happen so soon close to the start of the season.
1: Uh yeah, yeah, it's uh, you know, it, it is it is kind of weird. I guess it, it kind of got maybe I guess overshadowed by the uh, the Dallas stuff that came out later in that week, though. But uh, yeah, it's you know, I guess part of that would just be you know, like you said, it's like, same thing with Dallas, I guess, training camp starts in two weeks, to go through a coaching change right before the season starts, like, there could have been, obviously, there could have been, like, conversations between Brandon Sparks and Chris Latham about, like, the type of players and stuff to bring in, and now, you know, Sean Pittman, obviously, being the assistant coach is probably not, the philosophy probably isn't that different, but, um, but you still kind of have to go through that, a big, I guess structural kind of change or you know, a big really big key piece of your team leaving um just two weeks before before camp starts. And you know, it's not obviously it's kind of not, I guess, not as anywhere near as crazy as Dallas. Um, but I mean, like that's that's gotta be, I would imagine, kind of an interesting situation for players to be in, kind of going, you know two weeks out of camp and you now have a different guy as your head coach. Um, And I guess the, uh, the rest of the coaching staff would have to be reshuffled a little bit as you now need someone to kind of fill um, what Pittman's role used to be too. So um, there's been a, been a lot of, a lot of dramatic changes in uh, MLR over the past week so far. So, um but yeah like you said though it's like utah i thought utah did a really good job of like adding some different key pieces and stuff and you know they uh they added fr- um frazier Hurst from ubc so now that was the last official official team that didn't have a canadian on it so they added that and now we're you know canadians have invaded all 12 teams officially <laughs> in major league rugby now so i um, kind of excited to see that um that'll be interesting too because uh you know, with, with Hearst too, like they, the only other scrum half they have signed right now is Michael Baska. So that's going to be a lot of, you would imagine that's going to be a lot of opportunity for, uh, for Hearst to get a lot of playing time, even if it is a uh, 21 in Jersey instead of the starting nine. But um, yeah, I'm curious to kind of see how it kind of shapes out. I mean, I think Pittman's going to be a good coach for them. So um, I'm still looking forward to what the Warriors ha- are going to offer this year. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll, turn it kind of over to Jeff. It's like, what do you, what do you think of like the squad that they've, they, they have built so far and how, like, how big do you think like the coaching change so soon to the start of the season would affect the players?
2: Yeah, I think, um, putting Pittman in place is, uh, it, it, to me as a player, it makes sense. He's been in that system. Um, the players know him. Uh, so it's not like you're, yes, it's a, it's a big change. Um, having a a, a new head coach but he knows he knows what's going on within the, the workings of that program so as a player that's something that you can look at and 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 be comfortable with and i think mlr as a whole like there's tons of chopping and changing and it's it's dynamic and it's moving very quickly and stuff so Players are um, are pretty used to to, to changes happening uh, on the hot and ready, right? So I think they they've done the right thing putting putting someone in place. And and I'll say too, um, he's he's an American guy, um, so you know you get lots of foreigners coming in and stuff. So having someone that's um, kind of homegrown that that also is just it just helps the helps the league and, and and that brand as well. So I think overall, it's, it's, it's a good thing for them.
1: Do you think that like teams should kind of be, because obviously major league rugby, we always kind of talk about um, how great it is for developing North American players um, now that they, you know, a lot of guys have somewhere to play full time, but the league can also be kind of used to obviously be developing North American coaches um, as well as even more North American referees and all other kind of aspects of of rugby. And it's like, do you think like the league should kind of be striving towards? Um, maybe having a few more uh, North American based coaches or North American born coaches and stuff in the league. Or like, do you think like kind of bringing in like those guys that kind of grew up or, you know, say like in New Zealand or Australia or somewhere in Europe or whatever, bringing in that expertise obviously also kind of has that, that benefit or is it just more of finding that like balance throughout the whole league?
2: Yeah, I think it's gotta be a blend. Um, I think uh, because, Rugby is not, um, it's not like a super, super prominent sport as of yet. MLR is changing that um, and trying to, to build that. But um, the the amount of expertise and knowledge that those guys do bring over um, is super beneficial. And having someone um, like Pittman in a, an assistant coaching position and, and learning from other people um, allows him to move into this position um, with, a bit more of a knowledge base. And I mean, I've been coached by foreign coaches pretty much my whole career. Um, and you know, they they have that level of expertise and knowledge of growing around uh growing up around that game and stuff, and having that um spill into the North American coaching culture is good, but again, there, there, there's so much benefit to having um a local kind of homegrown guy um, to be able to take over that and to learn from those guys. So I think. It is a blend of having the guys that know uh, firsthand what it takes to be a successful uh, pro league and then learning from those guys.
0: So the last bit of uh, major league rugby news is this Um, again, another quick uh, departure or or, uh, before the season started Um, the Seattle uh, Seawolves founder and president Shane Skinner has decided to step down. Uh, He remains with the club still as an owner, but uh, is kind of, stay in the, in the background of, of the business and of the, of the team. Um, Jeff, you were part of a part of the, the Sea Wolves um, for, you know, almost a full season. Um, Did you ever really have any experiences with, uh, with, uh, with Shane and, and kind of how he uh, helped run the team?
2: Yeah. um, Obviously um, being an owner in the MLR, um, it's taxing. Um, You, you have to put, I think more than owners know you got to put a lot of time into it. Um, it's not like you can just be kind of a, a silent partner within it. You've got to, you got to be on, on the ground and, and working day to day. Um, personally, I, I really enjoyed, uh, Shane and I got to know him pretty well. Um, uh, it's just, again, it, it is a taxing thing. Um, and I think, uh, over the last three years, and I don't want to like put words in his mouth or anything, but, um, it, 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 for him, I I imagine there was just a lot more to to have to deal with um, than he anticipated, uh, and for him to to make that decision uh, there, I, I spoke to some of the guys, and uh, it, it, interesting transition, but for for him, I think it was just a, more of a, a personal decision and um, how much he had to actually put into to make that stuff kind of. Um, to happen. And he's done a great job with the branding and that sort of stuff, but, um, he wants to stay involved, uh, and he loves the team. He loves the players and that sort of thing. But, um, you're not just an owner, you're, you're, you're a GM, you're, you have to operate a, a full program. Like it's, it, there's a lot that you got to consider. Right. So, um, yeah, for him, uh, I don't know the, the exact reasons, um, that he's made that decision, but, um, I, I can see the the amount of stress and with COVID and so many different um, kind of circumstances, why, why he made that decision.
0: You know, we're going to move a little closer to home because uh, the, the Arrows have uh, announced their branding of their, their uh, joint Academy with the Ontario Blues, um, the Ontario Blues Junior Arrows Academy, which is a little bit of a mouthful, but uh, they released some, some fantastic graphics along with their, um, their academy, uh, you know, mandates, um, and, and, you know, Corey Hector added the logo while symbolic in nature, uh, further demonstrates our ongoing partnership and commitment to player development. Uh, while our rugby sessions have been temporarily disrupted, I mean, Ontario is currently in the tail ends of a, of a lockdown. So anything rugby related, especially with, you know, the younger, younger athletes have been very much disrupted. Um, the players and coaches have continued to demonstrate our shared values and the momentum we build through the end of 2020 leaves us well positioned to hit the ground running in 2021. Now I want to get kind of, uh, two different views, uh, and, and Stu from a fan perspective, um, what does it feel like to have the, the attention to detail that they put into it, um, kind of show because it'd be easy just to slap, you know, the arrows, Euros logo, and then put a little JR next to it. But they obviously put a little bit of thought into, you know, showing that they're they're how this logo is going to evolve and how they really want to put the time and effort into their junior team or Academy.
3: Yeah. It's, it is the little details that come through and make it more than the sum of its parts. I find like they've shown, they have a video on their um, arrows, Instagram account, showing the creation of this new logo and how it's formulated as a combination of the Arrows and Ontario Blues logo to come together. Even on the Arrows website, they have the Junior Academy brand story, which is talking about progression and moving forward and that when we win, we win as one. When we lose, we lift each other up. And because... If you were to break down everything into like the simple basic terms, we can just describe rugby as running whilst passing backwards and tackling. But it's obviously more than just that. It's the little details that come together. It's like the psychology of everything where it's going to go. And even with this junior academy, which is aimed at, I believe, 13 to 17-year-olds, They still include the Arrows uh, player pathway, which is looking at going from the junior academy into the senior academy or working with the Rugby Canada under-18 and under-20s program. And it just builds more that the Arrows are more than just, you know, a team that will be playing in the MLR every weekend or every other weekend, depending on bye weeks It's showing that this is a pathway for players that... Are now kids or like 12 year olds, 13 year olds that they can say, I've seen Canada play in like the Rugby World Cup and I want to go to France. I want to go to wherever the next World Cup is being held, hosted after that. And I want to play for Canada. How do I do it? And now there's now seems to be a clearer way for that to happen. And it starts with something as simple as. Just putting more emphasis into a logo and showing the story behind it.
1: Yeah. Now, it's uh, it's also honestly, it's just a really cool logo. I mean, and <laughs> oh, yeah. like ele- like taking away like some of the uh, the deeper analysis that's dude there. Um, I, I dig the uh, the idea of taking like the rugby Ontario, like the kind of like which is already kind of cool the trillium with like the rugby ball shape. Um, which I already kind of like, and then adding a bunch of the uh, you know making it a little bit more more like arrowhead kind of shape to it Mm -hmm. um i think it's a it's a nice little combination of the two programs kind of merging together and yeah as you said it's like i mean what we kind of talked about a little bit with jeff last week too is it's you know the path the path is sometimes kind of or it used to be it's a little it's a little bit wild it's kind of like whatever sort of avenue you can find to you know, elevate yourself to get to that program, uh, to get to the pro game. And then, you know, maybe there's, you know, a little bit of the right people watching you play in the right game at the right time, kind of mixed in there. But I said, like, it's nice to see like the arrows, especially uh, at the very least in Ontario and Canada as a whole, like developing that, like, if, if you have those aspirations to go pro in rugby, it's like, you can, like Dan, your, your favorite comparison that you love is like the, the hockey one of like the ladder is incredibly clear. Like you go, you know, you play triple a, then you play junior, then you play in the AHL, then you play in the NHL. It's nice and very clearly laid out for you. Um, It's nice to see like rugby kind of looks like they're developing that. Then it's nice to like, you know, now there's like a little bit of a logo and a little bit of an identity behind um, what the arrows are building here. Yeah.
0: And then, Jeff, I want to kind of ask you about that because in the last five years, you know, we've had the Pacific Pride be, you know, uh, reignited. Um, although it's not an official youth sport tournament, you know, the 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 Canada University men's tournament has kind of been reignited as well. And then, you know, you add not only just the Arrows Academy, but all these different um, MLR academies are popping up. Um, as someone who unfortunately did not have those luxuries, uh, Jardin is starting his, his career does it make you optimistic towards the future of Canadian rugby to see all these different, you know, spots opening up and opportunities opening up for, for younger players?
2: Yeah. And I think um, Stu, you made a, a super good point. Um, it's you're, you're making the, with this uh, Ontario blues Academy, it's like um, a, as a young athlete coming through, Uh, it's a tangible thing that you can see and you can see the pathway that you need to go. So for me personally, um, playing football first, um, I was lucky that I got into that U 17 program, but then there were, there were two or three years in between U 17 and U 20 where I was off the radar completely. Um, and it was actually Mike Shelley that came in and pulled me back in, um, from Saskatchewan to play, but you didn't have, um, you didn't have an idea of exactly what it took um, to make it to the national team. Um, Whereas now I think uh, having the MLR and having so many players playing in it and having the Toronto arrows there um, you go, okay, as a young guy, you can watch that and say, okay, we have a professional team. So that's something I want to aspire to, to, to get into. And then having this uh, Ontario blues Academy, that is, that's the system you got to get into so that you can make that transition and make that jump. Um, so having a clear pathway, even as a, young, as a young athlete, you don't prior, you didn't know exactly what you needed to do. Like, how do you get yourself into that system? Whereas now you can identify it. Um, and if it's something that you're really serious about as a 14 year old kid, um, you can, you can kind of target that and have that streamlined kind of, um, pathway to, to make yourself into the MLR team. And then obviously into the, the Canada system, Toronto arrows are it's a it's they're developing players for our national team and that is the the purpose behind it get guys in that environment early uh and then yeah having the 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 ontario blues academy is just a way that players can be solid in knowing that they have that
1: how important do you think it is just like across the board for all the mlr teams to start setting up something like um like an academy system cuz not every team does have it at this point but it seems to be kind of especially you know some of them are kind of crazy too like the free jacks having those the 13 teams regionally wide um which seems like a massive undertaking for for that club but if it works out for them that'll be great um but like what's kind of like your your stance on like do you think like is this like a like where like a lot of team, like teams, energy and stuff, like obviously away from the MLR team itself. But like, do you think that like building academies is like, you know, kind of like, I guess the way of the future to kind of continue to build the sport in North America?
2: It has to be. Um, we're in North America and Canada, especially again, there isn't that, there wasn't that, um, that pathway. So um, going back to the last episode, we're talking about Exeter, how they've been so successful. They have one of the best academies in all of the premiership. Um, These guys, they're identified at a very young age, uh, and they do a lot to retain those players to go into the top level. And you're seeing a really great brand of rugby that these guys have been involved in from 14 years old. So if we can do that same sort of thing and – Go, go to say Uruguay, like those guys, no one knew anything about them on a national stage until three years ago. That happened eight years ago when they started bringing those guys into that environment where they're training all the time. They're not in full professional environments, but they're centralized and they're running systems and they there's cohesion within the team. So we need to get those sorts of things because um, even from when I first started in 2011, uh, we were, or 2012, uh, after the 2011 World Cup, we were 11th in the world and now we're 24th um, and we don't have those pathways. Uh, we were losing games to Georgia and Romania and they have those programs and they have the systems for those players to be identified at a very young age and to, sk- to scale them up. So having this in place, um, it gets the guys that are serious about rugby from a young age. Um, it's not not so much a rugby is a secondary sport anymore. We're at the point now where people are learning the the game at a young age and we have to put those things in place so that they have the opportunity to, to move up and to scale up. And now you can see it as a tangible, um, I need to do this, 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 and that's how I'm going to get this pathway.
0: We're going to finish off guys talking about, Rugby kind of is a broader scheme. Um, one of the, the former Bulls directors of rugby, Alan uh, Zondag, decided to go to LinkedIn to write this article, uh, but he wrote a doozy of an article talking about how rugby's, and this is this is the, the title, rugby's current state must be a major concern for most rugby intellectuals. Now, I don't describe myself as a rugby intellectual, mostly because I don't have the time to watch every single league and game and, but I feel very strange reading this and I, I just don't agree with it. And so I want to get your guys' opinion about it. You know, some of the things he says is it's becoming slow, pedantic, predictable and boring. It's feeble to watch too many stoppages. And the one that really I f- take issue with is different playing styles have disappeared. There's only copy and paste rugby all doing the same thing over and over one team just does it better than the others. So guys, you've all had a chance to look at this. How do we feel about what he's trying to say? You know, not everyone has been, again, not everyone in in the world has been able to play rugby, right? You know, um, the U S national team hasn't been, Canada hasn't been able to, teams like Uruguay have played a little bit in, uh, in, in South America and had like a quick tour. uh, But, what do we feel about this? Like this, is, it's such a strange thing to come out.
1: Honestly, I say we start with Jeff on this because I'm very curious to hear a player's perspective on uh, the uh, the article that uh, Alan Zonda presented here.
2: Yeah, had uh, a, a quick glance over some of the things he put, and like, there's multiple points on there. And from a player's perspective, there are things that I can certainly relate to. Um, it's, I'll, I'll take. Tyler Arjon, for example, just to contextualize Rugby Canada. So um, in the Osprey system, uh, in Welsh rugby, it was very much about possession and controlling the game. You're playing in wetter conditions and that sort of thing. And then him moving to uh, New Zealand and playing in the Chiefs environment and speaking to him, he's like, my rugby IQ has gone up massively. Um, And they give them the freedom to play a little bit more and offload and use the skills that he had that... I wouldn't say they they stunted him in the UK, but his abilities weren't able to be expressed. So, um, with the the comments of being a slow, pedantic, predictable, boring, um, in the in the international sense, um, you you see teams capitalizing on on big mistakes um, and having turnover ball, and that's when the All Blacks will score. Um, so. You have, to, you have to play within kind of a, a structured system um, and it could be perceived as slow and pedantic. Um, but then you, you watch some of the other like premiership games and super rugby and stuff when the guys aren't in that uh, massive international high pressure situation and you see massive amounts of skill. Like it's uh, rugby is, yes, it's getting bigger, faster, stronger, but you're seeing stuff that hasn't ever been done before. So I don't agree with all of the things that he's saying, but, um, you know, there's more emphasis on stats and possession and, you know, the turnover game and that sort of thing. They make sense. Um, when you actually strip it down, but yeah, it's tough. Like he, he's made some seriously, um, aggressive comments in there. Uh, <laughs> on, like senseless kicking and stuff. It's like, I get that. Like, I, I don't want to kick. I want to keep the ball and, and play uh, free flowing rugby and stuff. But at the end of the day, it is a territory and possession based game. So um, all of those things kind of tie into it. Um, Yeah, it's, it is interesting. See
1: the the one thing I kind of get, and I know, I guess, I guess this overall thing is like, there's certain elements that teams will play certain styles that are kind of boring. And based on what we kind of talked about in the last episode and with you saying like how excited you were, not even to necessarily like win the shield with Seattle, but just like the week leading up to it, how excited you were to actually, like you get to play in a final for the first time, as you said, in any sport that, or at any level. Um, And kind of like looking at it, it's like, he is mentioning that, you know, maybe at some time, maybe some teams play styles can be a little boring or something, but at the same time, it's like some of those teams that have maybe those boring play styles are, you know, teams that win. Right. So it's like when it comes back and he even says it's like some of the stats kind of back up that some of these styles are successful from like, a, so it's like, I guess, Jeff, like, would you as a player, like, would you rather play on a boring team that won a championship or the most exciting team in the world, but you're like last in the league? Like what's better from basically would you rather here? play
0: with like a team like Fiji that is just out there to, they, they just cause chaos. They are chaos incarnate. Or would you rather play for a team that he's native from South or South Africa that won the last world cup playing this style of rugby that he's complaining about?
2: Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's a, a super interesting question and I can, I'll, I'll answer it in a, in a quick second, but you make a good point. Like knowing that he, was in the uh, the Blue Bulls um, kind of coaching environment and knowing what South African rugby is, they won a World Cup based off their pack, having a strong pack um, possession and a, a kick-based game and controlling the game. They've won it. So it's like, it, it's tough uh, to see some of his points where that is exactly what they base their structure around and they won it. They're the best team in the world. Um, me personally, uh, I think rugby is... Um, and I enjoy it the most when people are having fun and I don't like, I'm not a, a I've got two left feet. I'm not a kicking guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like I'll carry it from my own 22 and I get the ball. Like I, I just want to play. Um, and then my personal experience. So when I was at um, Osprey's playing with some of those, those guys that are the best in the world um, I played with Dan Bigger quite a bit. Uh, and he is the classic 10 that controls the game and that's why he's being in that position leading that team but I personally enjoyed playing with Sam Davies way more because he would take it to the line he offloaded he he wanted to play and so anytime he was slotted in that 10 position as a wing where they give you the ability to, to, to free roam and that sort of stuff that's when I really enjoyed it and like I think everybody just wants to have fun playing like that. That's what it comes down to. You've done it since you were a young, young kid. Um, and uh, I switched sports because of the enjoyment of the game um, and being in those games where you're, you're kind of just plugging away and possession and this and that uh, it's not as fun as when you're playing run, running rugby uh, and that it happens and certain players are better at doing it or that's the way their playing style is. So um it, Yeah. It, it depends on, on on the level that you're playing in and and the certain situations of the game, really. Uh, kind of a, a vague answer, but yeah.
0: No, it, I get it.
2: Stu, how do you feel about this?
0: Because I like it when you get fiery and fired up about, about some of this stuff. So how do you feel about this
1: article? And Stu's well, the one that sent us all of this, so I could immediately tell. Whenever Stu sends a link to something, it's because he's mad. It's not. Stu never sends a link and is like, "Hey guys, check out this really cool try that someone just scored." It's always yeah. like, "I hate what this person just said." So, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: um, well, funny you should mention that. Um, I think the first thing that's kind of a bit of a like a red flag for me is that even in the um, title of the article, he says it's a concern for most rugby intellectuals. I'm not saying it's a concern for like rugby fans. It's not concerned for the you know like coaching structure. It's not even a concern for the players. It's just the intellectuals, and this kind of goes back to you know talking about like the old guard. You know the because um, uh, Alan Zonder, uh, he, he's been he's a very decorated coach. He's been involved in South African rugby for a good few de- a good few decades, and has moved from. Uh, coaching in the amateur era into the professional era so i'm not um pushing him aside but it does seem a a, an expression that the old guard uses of um you know like amateur was so much better than these like namby-pamby professionals that have to be like pampered everywhere they go and i know that that just rubbed me wrong there's also a few points in the article that uh, seem to like contradict him. So he's talking about. Let me find the exact wording. Is when it comes to um...
2: the exact one point that really irked you. Oh yeah, no. That's what uh, I'm saying. It's uh, like uh, the, that... the only reason we're talking about this is because <laughs>
1: Stu is incredibly upset by this man's article. So we have to we have to do it. Or I'll still just keep yelling at me and Dan. So we'll let him yell at <laughs> yell at uh, the the masses of people that will listen to this now instead. <laughs>
3: Um, but they're talking about um, – that, that's the thing. There's a lot of points in this article. <laughs> and then when it comes to the conclusion, he continues keeping it vague. And so it's like, how can we change this? Or coaches and players must change their attitude to playing. Not specific. Okay. Okay. What's the next point? Um, oh, it contains a different facet. They must all be used at the right – not specific. The laws can still be tweaked. The laws are always being tweaked. And then it's, the only thing that's concrete is that penalise the players that are infringing, stop warning them. If you have to the laws, you must be penalised. And that I, that I can see like both sides of it because I've seen referees um, give certain players warnings when it's clearly a penalty offence. But at the same time, is that if you make everything, any mistake that happens or any... Um, action immediately becomes a penalty then he's just making a worse game because then he's complaining about it being like a stop start game and if you penalize everything that's a stop start game that's just making it worse he then also goes i'll put forward some of my recommendations in the next few weeks it's like great now i have to do more reading because i think if you if you identify a problem you have to have a solution hired immediately yeah yeah
0: it, it's yeah. clickbait and really that's yeah. what it comes down to yeah. i i get frustrated when he talks about things like like there's too many substitutes before we know it there will be 15 players sitting on the bench in the future this is not good for the game obviously his he's not worried about player welfare then like there just seems to be certain things that like too many people allowed on the field during matches medical staff water boys etc this is very disruptive and should not be allowed Okay, so if a guy gets hurt, then we have to leave him. Or the guys can't have water. Like it, it it just there's just these weird comments that he makes that just seem very strange to me. And I, again, I'm not a right. I'm gonna say I'm not a rugby intellectual. I'm not gonna uh, declare myself that part of that upper echelon of rugby people. But I just seen that I, I personally think. Post and, and and Jeff, I think this would be interesting to get your, your perspective on this. I think post pandemic, when everyone starts getting back into the real swing of things, I think we're going to see a big change in how people take running their programs and how rugby is just going to be played because you've seen it across a lot of different sports, how they're starting to run their business, their, their programs based on how COVID has interrupted it. You know, there's, there's a lot more, I think there's going to be a turn a lot more into player welfare. At least I hope there will be after all of this. So I, I think, I think it's gonna be interesting. So maybe he'll get what he wishes and there might be a change. I just think that uh, he's just saying the sky is falling when there really isn't any sign yeah. for it.
3: Yeah. I've, I've actually now found the um, contradiction. So one bullet point says, a lot of senseless kicking, the attitude is that as long as I don't have the ball or I'm not in my half of the field, I will have a better chance to win the match. And then a few bullet points later is that teams are playing uneconomical rugby, putting in so much effort for minimum results, just going through the motions. They are happy as long as they are keeping possession. So they so keep possession, they, but they're yeah. also
0: kicking it away. Yeah,
3: so are they are they making stupid kicks or are they keeping possession? It's um. This is, and that's the thing is that if there's contradictions, there's no solution to these apparent issues. And it's not aimed at, like, if he had opened the article with saying that, oh, you know, rugby has become so boring, fans aren't watching anymore, and then lists, like, the issue or, like, the possible causes of that, I think that it would be a better structured article. But this just seems to be a seems to be a coach that's listing his grievances and then wants us all to, you know, uh, follow his blog until he can uh, produce the, uh, what he believes are the right answers. The other thing is, is that anything when it comes to uh, changing the laws of certain games, um, such a, I know that the TMO is always a big thing in uh, the European leagues and international games. And it's like, why does the TMO have so much control in uh, these games when he's – should he only be allowed to do, uh, you know, the grounding of a try or if there's been, like, a penalty offence and that's it? And it actually reminded me is that 10 years ago, um, during the Six Nations, was the Wales-Island game where Wales took a quick uh, line out, uh, scored the try, and the referee had to give the try – even though the ball that was used was a brand new ball and therefore they had to do a full line out. They couldn't do a quick throw in. And it's because of things like that, that we have the rules in place for when it comes to TMO is that they have to, because they'll see things that, you know, the line, the line judge and the referee can't see everything that's going on. And obviously having an extra pair of eyes will help definitely. But when it comes to what this guy wants to do, he obviously wants to like change the laws to make it like a more interesting game and only have so many players playing and they can only, they can either kick sensibly or not have possession. I'm still not sure what they (laughs) want to do with that, but um, you have to ask why do we have the current laws in place? And yes, the laws will change. They'll have to, it's a growing game, you know, players every, ever since the game turned professional, the laws have been changing, but it, I think before any changes can be made, you have to look at why we have the current law structure available to us right. at the moment.
1: I'm going to kind of piggyback off that because I want to ask Jeff a question here. And just as a player, just be, since we are on this topic, if you could change one law, which one would you change? And what would you change it to? Or if you could add a, a law? If, s- s- go with that. If you, can, you, you can either add one law or change one law something else what would you pick
2: so I think he the he, the bullet points I can I can read through them and every single one of them instantly I think of something so I could go through each <laughs> one um, but there is one rule that's been brought up already um, that uh, I think there are some leagues that want to trial it and I think it would get rid of what he's saying too many stoppages slow pedantic whatever um and it's the it's the rule that they're saying if you kick it from in your 22 and it hits ground and goes out you regain possession so
1: right the uh, the rugby league forty uh, twenty kick rule
2: exactly yeah. so that one for me especially as a back three player is interesting because um, if you're out of position and that ball hits ground and goes out, they gain possession wherever it goes out, right? So yeah. it puts a lot of emphasis on having a proper backfield. And within that, that means you're not going to be able to do, to do what current pro teams do, where they'll put a, a 10 and a 15, your, your top kickers in the backfield, and then wingers can play up front. And you've got a 13-man line. You're going to have to put three players in the backfield to cover the ground. So that is going to open up rugby a little bit more and players can attack from all areas of the field. Um, right. So that, that one it, to me is interesting. And if they, I'd, I'd like to see it um, because that even having one player in the backfield, having 15 players on the pitch, that changes things massively because you have way more ability to attack seams. Your defensive line is spread a little bit more because you have to cover that. You can have a, a 60 meter um, swing with a good kick. And with, with the, the skill of the tens and nines nowadays, they can, they can put that ball exactly where it needs to be to get that 60 meter swing. So you have to load the backfield a little bit more, which opens up the game and makes it a bit more expansive and you would see a little bit more free flowing uh, rugby. So that, that, that's something that I'm, when I heard that initially, I was like, Ooh, that's, it's kind of a spicy one.
1: (laughs) Do do you, so like, do you think that would be like, that would kind of open up the game more just because of like like even if i guess if it would be something new maybe teams would have to work on being able to like execute it and everything but it would just be kind of like the threat that a team with say like a really good kicker um would be able to be like yeah here i'll take this 50 meters right now cuz your winger is 3 feet away from where he should be
2: yeah and the skill level like so that's why i don't agree with this he says uh one of the points is uh i don't know exactly which one yeah a lot of non uh, a lot of senseless kicking it's like Okay, well, right now you're doing it for possession, but it wouldn't be senseless kicking. Um, some of those guys have such a good skill level that when you are three meters out of position, that is the difference between turning your head and catching that ball, or them getting sixty meters. Like those, those guys are so good that they can put it in that spot if you're right. a bit out of position. So you do you'd have to you'd have to drop extra players, um, and then you see some teams that are dropping eight men on box kicks so they can just get full steam ahead. You're going to have to drop a forward into the backfield too. And then with that, um, again, it, it spreads your defensive line across the pitch and it opens those little half gaps. Um, and you're going to see the, the games progressing with forwards that aren't just guys that sit there and stick their heads in rucks. Like they're si- like super, super solid ball carriers. And you give them that extra meter with one other defender is it, honestly, it changes it like massively, you look at like a, a, a yellow card and a red card, how much more space do players have?
0: When, when there's 100%. one less guy on the pitch.
2: 100%. So you put that guy in the backfield, he's got to cover it because that is a massive advantage if you can get that gain from a kick. That creates more space in, in the entire game.
1: Well, well, even adding on to that then, like with you saying, like how, how much more space you have with a red card and yellow card, then I guess if you had that rule – in place where you get rewarded for having that precise kick. And then now you give up a yellow card and stuff. And now you're down to, now you have like another less guy on like the defensive line, because you need to drop somebody else back to the back, to that backfield in order to cover that kick. And now like, I I guess in a way that would just open up even more and you'd probably get more tries at the very least with yellow cards, more points um, like during that phase of the game
2: too, then. 100% and like for me positionally thinking as a wing um in the in the yellow card scenario there are certain positions where I'm way more conscious I'm like if that guy's out of the game I'm in a I'm up shit creek basically right mm-hmm. um and then it depends too like on if you have two centers that one of them doesn't reload to my side with two passes you're automatically in a in a scenario where you've got a give space and they're going to they're going to exploit that so if you guys don't have uh if you don't have someone that's reloading back to your side and then you're in a yellow card and you have another person in the backfield i'm defending with two players on 30 percent of the pitch that is an extremely hard thing to do and you can you can identify that three phases before it actually happens and you're sitting there as a wing, you're like get over here now because they're (laughs) they're on the other side and you've got three guys in the backfield you 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 already know you're in you're in a, a really tough position. So, it, yeah, uh, you, when you, when you actually look at it, the the spacing across the board is really interesting, and you can see if you've got one extra guy tightening up your defensive line by one meter per person, has a massive knock on effect. Not even just one phase, two phase; it's three phases down the line. And good teams will identify that and be able to to get through those seams.
1: So I, I'm kind of curious. So, like you said, as a winger, like you know, like if a certain teammate, based on their position, gets a yellow card, you know, like you're kind of in trouble. It's like, what what positions are you like the most concerned about? Like if you see see them get a yellow card, to be like, okay, my job for the next ten minutes is going to be a hell of a lot harder. Yeah,
2: it's a that's a funny one. Um,
1: <laughs> I'm not saying like rip apart teammates that have gotten yellow cards or not anything. No, no,
2: no, so- hundred <laughs> percent. I'm, I'm thinking in my head like. Any forward position, I'm fine. Like like this right. is fully. I'm, – I'm thinking of it like uh, as a personal, like I'm going to be in the shits if a center is out. Or the worst one is a 15. So say and, – oh, and they yeah. typically don't get um, carded. Usually it's like a, um, an aerial thing or like a high tackle. So if a 15 does, that completely changes my game because I'm going to have to cover way more backfield. I can't be frontline. I can't do those sorts of things. And then at that point, the wings have to play on either side and you're having to shift and cover way more ground. Um, And then they're also a driver on like short side plays. You know, the 10 will take the open side and the 15. The communication level now that a 15 brings, that's super tough for me. But like, if I see a seven get red carded, it doesn't affect me. (laughs) You know, like... The guys in the forward pack will say the complete opposite thing. They're like, we'd rather that guy because now our scrum's down a man and we've got to push X amount harder. And so it, it's very positional um, based. But for me, like even having a 10 get carded, not an issue because your 12 is usually in today's game skilled enough that they can step into that. And yeah, you're attacking with one less guy, but there you have those things in place. But it's having, uh, for me, a, a backfield player, even another wing, the other guy, then, then the 15 has to put more or less play that other side of the, of the pitch. And then you're, you're just covering so much more ground and it puts so much more stress on you.
0: Well, you know what, we're going to end up wrapping up there. Uh, Jeff, we really appreciate you coming on, but one last question. If anybody goes to Jeff's Instagram, it's full of, uh, some of his escapades while he was sailing around the world, either post uh, uh, 2019 world cup or when he took his break from rugby. So our last question to you and, and Derek uh, came up with it is where are some of your favorite places to sail?
2: Oh man. Um, yeah. I mean, I did, but I did my sailing license in South Africa. Um, I love South Africa um, as a country. And that was part of the reason why I chose to do it there. Um and spent six months doing it, um, and it was just—it was a hectic place to do it. They got crazy winds and the danger coast, and you know, it's like a, a really cool place to do it. But that is one extreme um, as far as uh, having an enjoyment uh, and sailing. I think anywhere in the Mediterranean, like Greece and and that sort of places you get the, you get the nice winds and stuff. So you can sail, but you can also chill and the, the water color is super nice. But, um, actually after the world cup took, uh, 10 of the boys to Thailand and we did uh, a trip, uh, yeah, with 10 of us on a 45 foot catamaran in, in uh, Phuket. And it was just a, it was an awesome trip. You can imagine after, after five months together in like the most, high intensity environment and uh, that our level of sport can provide. Uh, it was a, it was a pretty fun time. And Thailand was uh, a good place to sail as well. But I'd say if I, if I, if I would uh, pack up my bags and go, I'd probably be the the Mediterranean um, just because, well, it's pretty awesome there.
1: Yeah. So there, do you have like a, like a, like a bucket list location that you haven't sailed yet that you would like to someday, whether it's, You know, just uh, in like, say, next off season or maybe like when you're when you're uh, finished playing rugby at all?
2: Oh, yeah, man, I've got it's a a long bucket list. Oh, yeah. Um, I think like the the appeal of sailing is you can go to places that people can't get to easily. Right. So one of the one of the places uh, is uh, like Seychelles. You've got 300 islands that no one lives on. And you can go anchor up and you have an entire island to yourself. You can't fly in there. There's only one way to get there. And you get, you get to experience things in a completely different way. So um, those sorts of places are what really kind of intrigues me. You get there off the back of Mother Nature. Um, and like going to places like Tahiti and Fiji and some of those, those islands where people uh, through the rugby community, which is great. Um, but they're also just super remote like you can't get there any other way. Um, that's the appeal of it.
0: Well, once again, Jeff, we appreciate you coming on the show. Um, we are really looking forward to, to seeing you play with the Gil Gronies in that, that burnt orange. Um, now, uh, Derek, if anybody wants to listen to more of our podcasts or follow us for more of our updates, where can
1: they head to? Oh, wow. You usually make Stu do this, but I guess... I know. I'm, I'm keeping you on your toes this week. Yeah, he, he's still too, he's too angry. He would deliver it to us. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you want to listen to any more of our LaRouge Rugby podcast, so this would be episode 55 by now, so you can listen to all 54. Um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, any other major podcasting platform too. Make sure you leave us like a review. Um, it helps... Other people find it if it's reviewed well. Um, you can follow us across social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Everything is at LaRouge Rugby. Um, and if you feel like it, if you you know if your thoughts cannot fit in a tweet, um, you can email us to at Rugby Podcast at gmail.com. Um, so uh, we appreciate you listening and uh, you know the support and you know follow along because uh, we'll have a lot more exciting stuff to happen as the, the season goes on. And uh, we'll have some more awesome guests like Jeff and Jeff, I'll give you the opportunity. If you want to plug anything, uh, um, that you're doing lately, feel free to uh, let the people know, uh, where they can find your stuff at.
2: Yeah. hundred percent guys. Honestly, it's uh, it's been a really fun morning. I uh, enjoyed it. And, uh, sometimes it's good. Just having a yarn and, and talking shop, um, uh, anytime, uh, let me know. And, uh, yeah, uh, really enjoyed it. And, uh, Keep doing what you guys are doing. Uh, I think building the, the brand of rugby in Canada is huge and people like you, uh, it, it's important. And uh, yeah, it's been uh, uh, enjoyable morning.